following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Today's sermon is a bit of a cover song. Are you familiar with that term? If I say cover song, you know what that means? Some of you are saying yes, some of you are saying no. So let me tell you what it is. A cover song is when um, one musician or artist performs a version of a song that was written by a different musician or artist. Typically, the, the songwriter has written a very famous song, and somebody else will uh, sing a version of it. Right? For example, um, the song we just heard, Hallelujah, written by Leonard Cohen, uh, and has been covered, <clears throat> I don't know, four or five billion times uh, by many, many artists, uh, pr- practically every singer-songwriter who's ever lived and, and strummed a guitar or plucked away at a keyboard, um, Is that what keyboardists do, Mel? Pluck away? I don't really know, but um, they all do a version of Hallelujah at one time or another. Um, Probably the most famous version is by Jeff Buckley, and that made it onto the Shrek soundtrack. So um, most of you would have heard it there at least, right? Um, I'll give you another version. Uh, All along the Watchtower, right? If you listen to classic rock radio, you've heard this. Jing, 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 jing. Jing, 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 right? (coughs) That is Jimi Hendrix. Um, performing uh, All Along the Watchtower, one of many artists to do this song, which was written by Bob Dylan, right? And as is the case with many songs written by Bob Dylan, (coughs) when other people perform the song, it sounds better (laughs) than when Bob Dylan does, (coughs) right? So so that's a cover song, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with doing a cover song. Cover songs are great. It gives an artist a chance to use some vocabulary that's really, really well-established, um, gives you a chance to put your own spin on things. But what you cannot do, the cardinal sin, would be, of course, to perform someone else's song uh, and call it your own. You can't do that. I mean, unless you're a bunch of unethical hacks like Led Zeppelin. And then in that case, that's exactly what you do. This is true. They did. They stole uh, most of their early repertoire from uh, um, African-American bluesmen. And they wrote that they, on the liner notes, it says they wrote the songs. And then they got sued like they should have, and they had to pay it back. <laughs> anyway, this is not a sermon about Led Zeppelin's uh, many sins against humanity. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, the spandex shirt down to the belly button. I mean, come on. Anyway, the, the point of all this is, uh, is to say that today's sermon is a cover song. Okay? Uh, it's a cover version of a wonderful sermon that has been preached by a handful of different people. I've heard it in a bunch of different settings at this point. I first heard it preached by a pastor in Missouri named Brian Zond. Um, but it was originally conceived, as I understand it, by an Eastern Orthodox priest. And it has been preached in Catholic churches and Protestant churches and Eastern Orthodox churches and all around the world. Different people have preached this particular sermon. It's one of the best, uh, most arresting and touching sermons I have ever heard. And so I want to preach it for you today. I did this actually on Easter Sunday last year, if you were here, you remember. It's called The Gospel in Chairs, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Um, But it's such a good sermon that that I wanted to do it again. And it actually makes a really nice bridge from the first Eastertide series we did, which was called A Beautiful Gospel, to this second Eastertide series, which is called A Christ-like God. Um, So... uh, I want to start with the, uh, the chorus of the song, if you will, the, the hook, to use pop music uh, nomenclature, um, the part that's repeated over and over again that gets stuck in your head. 
Um, but before I can get to the hook, I have to go back to the beginning. How many of you know what the first three words in the Bible are? In the beginning. We mentioned this last week. In the beginning. It's the first page of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. In the beginning. How many of you know what the first three words in the Gospel of John are? In the beginning. Now, if you think this is a coincidence, you don't know how the Gospel writers roll. (laughs) In the beginning is how the creation story in Genesis begins, and the evangelist John uses the same phrase to start the story of Jesus. He does this intentionally. And the reason why, well, you'll see it. How many know what happens in the beginning um, in Gospels John? What comes after that? In the beginning was, I don't even need to look it up, see? In the beginning was the Word, capital W, the great logic of God, the logos is the Greek word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and through Him all things came into being. Do you see the connection now to Genesis 1? Nothing came into being apart from Him. And then what does it say in verse 14? The Word became flesh. This is just a a visceral kind of way of saying it was embodied. It took on human form. Jesus became flesh and uh, tabernacled among us, right, Uh, is is what the the language suggests. It basically means he he lived among us. Uh, Eugene Peterson says he moved into the neighborhood. And see, I need to get there first because that idea that the Word was in the beginning with God and became flesh, and moved into the neighborhood. That is the theological underpinning for much of what we've been talking about through this Eastertide season. Uh, It's the theological underpinning for all the stories in the Gospels. It's the theological underpinning, in my opinion, for all the stories in the Bible itself. And I would go beyond the Bible and say that that fact, that the Word was in the beginning with God and moved into the neighborhood, is the theological underpinning for all the stories that are told in the world. So, here is the chorus of the song. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. God's people haven't always known this, but now we do. Let me sing it for you again. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. God's people haven't always known this, but now we do. That's the hook. That's the chorus. To put it even more succinctly, we have a Christ-like God. So now what I want to do is give you the story of the gospel in two different ways. I want to tell you God's great good news, his glad tidings, the message in two different ways. The first way that I'm going to give it to you is the way that probably most of you in the room have heard it told for most of your life. Whether you grew up in the church, certainly if you grew up in the church, but even if you didn't, you probably could piece together some version of this telling of the gospel just based on what you've heard from pop culture and or shouted at you through a megaphone when you are walking into Frontier Field to see the Red Wings play. (laughs) 
It's a very common understanding of the gospel. And uh, it may seem like it's been around forever because in our mind it has, but it's actually fairly modern. The nuances in this version of the gospel are only really, uh, they've only really been part of our collective understanding for about 25% of church history. Now, if you're doing back of the napkin math, I see some of you doing this, you know that 25% of church history, that's longer than America has been a country. So you could be forgiven for having only heard this version of the gospel because it has permeated American cultural consciousness, particularly in the church. And it's not all bad, but it's not all good either. I have some problems with it that I want to um, illuminate. And so I will give you that first version of the gospel, and then I will share with you the problems that I see in it, and then... I'll give you a second version of the gospel that is different in a few key ways and which I think is more um, consistent with the broad teaching of Scripture. It is certainly more consistent with the broad teaching of the church over the entirety of its history. And it is certainly a more beautiful telling of the gospel. And to tell you these two versions of the gospel story, I'm going to use chairs. Hence the title, The Gospel and chairs. So we have two chairs here. This chair, which has been painted black, I will use to represent God. Um, in the beginning, Genesis, right? There's uh, darkness, right? So here's God hovering over the, the darkness. Remember, the black chair is God. The unpainted chair, which is, uh, I guess, tan, um, represents humanity. And so here's the first telling of the gospel. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created humankind in his image and his likeness to reflect his glory into the world around him, around them, and to be in fellowship with himself. And God placed Adam and Eve representative of the entire human race, into the Garden of Eden. And everything was beautiful for a time until tragedy struck and in their pride, Adam and Eve, again representing all of humanity, sinned and turned away from God. Turned their backs on Him. And so there was a beginning of a breaking of fellowship here. And because God is so holy that he cannot bear to look upon sin, God turned his back on them. And the separation was complete. Now, because God loved his people so much, he sent his son into the world to be the perfect human being that Adam and Eve, representative of all the people in history, were not able to be. And Jesus lived a sinless life and showed us the way. But in the end, he was crucified. And there on the cross, Jesus took on himself all the sin of the world 
And so when God looks on the Son, because He is so holy and cannot bear to look on sin, He turns from Jesus. Now, Jesus, the man, uh, miraculously rises from the dead, the great glory of Easter, so that if we believe that all of this is true, we have our fellowship with God restored because Jesus is for us a, a covering from the wrath of God for sinners. Martin Luther put this uh, in uh, such beautiful terms when he said that we are like snow-covered dung. Or a a more modern preacher, uh, I think it was R.C. Sproul, who said that Jesus is our asbestos suit (laughs) that protects us from the white-hot wrath of God against sinners. If we do not believe, we remain in sin and we turn away from Him. And eventually, if we never repent, we'll feel that white-hot wrath absent the asbestos suit for all of eternity. Now, this is the first telling of the Gospel. As I said, there is a lot of truth there. It's not all bad, but it's not all good. And I have uh, a few key problems that I would like to draw out of this first telling of the gospel for you today. Here's the first problem. What is it that determines God's disposition toward us in this telling of the gospel? It is our own choices. We turn to him, he turns to us. We turn away, he turns away. Perhaps that's putting slightly too fine a point on it, but not really that fine a point on it, is it? In the end, uh, and this is remarkable to me because apparently the whole point of the Protestant Reformation was to get us away from thinking that we are saved by works and into the realization that we are saved by faith, Uh, the Reformers and all of their spiritual uh, sons and daughters uh, in the West have come up with this version of the gospel that that makes it so that God's uh, disposition toward us changes according to what we do. Now, that sounds to me uh, not like what the Protestant Reformation was trying to uh, teach. That's the first problem. And the second one is like this, which is that it pits God and humanity against each other. It pits God against the people whom he loves and created, right? The story of Scripture, as I understand it, as it's revealed in Jesus, is that God so loved the world. But in this telling of the gospel, it does not seem like that is uh, the case, at least not all the time. It seems to come and go. Now, what does that come from? Well, it comes from that that idea that I said. Remember uh, when I said um, that God is so what? So holy that he cannot bear to look on sin? He has to turn his eyes away, right? Where would we get an idea like that? Well, from the Bible. Well, from a verse in the Bible. Uh, Well, I mean, from half a verse in the Bible. (laughs) 
have you ever heard, have you ever seen somebody write, write down a scripture reference and they put the, the book and the chapter and the verse and then a letter, A or B, right? Do you know what that means? It means that we're, in this case, only looking at the half of the verse, right? Uh, if you see, for example, Habakkuk 1.13a, that would be the first half of that verse. Um, and if you use B, it would be the second half of the verse. So there's two reasons why people might do this. One is, well, uh, the, the ideas, the flow of ideas in this chapter as we see it seems to break in the middle of the verse. That happens sometimes because the verses are not divinely inspired, right? They're, they're put in there by an editor later. And it may be that, you know, this, this wall of Greek or Hebrew or whatever text, um, some editor broke it in a place that's kind of weird. So we're going to start in the middle and pick up with the thought that clearly is beginning right there. Or we're going to end in the middle with the thought that ends right there. That's the first reason. The second reason you might use an A or a B is you don't really like what happens in the other half of the verse. It doesn't quite preach the message you want it to, and so you're going to pretend it's not there. Habakkuk 1.13a, Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing, period. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a semicolon. Do you know what 13b says? It says, so why do you? It's the prophet Habakkuk saying what so many of us have said so many times. God, I thought you were holy. How can you see what is happening in the world today and look on this? How can you even bear to look on the despicable evil that we see in the world? You are so holy, you can't even do that. Why do you do that? So you see, Habakkuk 1.13a does not tell us that God is so holy that he cannot bear to look on sin. It tells us that we wish that was the case when we are being sinned against. All right, so the, the, the second problem is that it pits God against us, against humankind, right? And the third problem flows from that, and it's even worse. This first telling of the gospel is problematic because it pits the Father against the Son, now, I don't want to get, I, I don't want to get um, too hung up on doctrine here. Um, I know we kind of go easy with the creed and things. But isn't there something in Christian doctrine uh, about the nature of God as something like he is, uh, God is triune, that's the word, right? God is uh, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if your gospel requires you to rip the Father apart from the Son, then I'm sorry to tell you that at least formally speaking, that's a heresy. So this first telling of the gospel, not all wrong, but not all right. Let me give you the second telling of the gospel. It starts out the same way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created humankind in his image and his likeness. Why? So that they would reflect his glory into the world around them. And so that they would be in fellowship with him. And he placed Adam and Eve, representative of all the human race, into the Garden of Eden, and for a while things were good. But then tragedy struck, and Adam and Eve, representing all human race, 
in their pride, sinned against God, and they turned away from Him. And the consequences of that turning away from God was that they became and we became subject to futility and death. And so I would suggest to you that the the primary problem that the gospel addresses is not a problem of legal guilt, but rather a problem of death. And that what Adam and Eve and all of us in the human race need first and foremost from our Savior is not a good attorney who can get us off uh, on a technicality, but instead the great physician who can heal the disease that's making us sick and which is terminal. So God... In his mercy, looks on Adam and Eve, who are so ashamed of what they've done that suddenly they realize that they're not wearing any clothes and they make some out of leaves. And God says to them, where are you? What have you done? And they say, we're ashamed. She did it. No, he did it. No, the snake did it. The blame game begins. And God in his mercy says to them, listen, you, you cannot live in the garden with the tree of life in this state of shame because it will be an eternity of misery. And so God sends them out of the garden He gives them some better clothes. (laughs) But he doesn't leave them alone. He sends them out, but he goes with them. And then the story continues, and Adam and Eve have sons, Cain and Abel. And Cain, uh, in his jealousy and his anger, does the unthinkable commits the terrible sin of murdering his brother. And God says, Cain, where is Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Leave me alone. And God says, his blood is calling out to me from the ground. What have you done? And so Cain, too, goes off in shame. But does he go alone? No, because God goes with him. God places the mark on him. Do you remember this part of the story? The mark of his protection so that when Cain goes out into a world and people learn what he has done, no one will avenge the death of his brother by murdering him. But Cain goes off to found civilization as we know it on lies and murder. But he doesn't go alone. The story continues, and eventually God calls out to Abraham and says, Abraham, I will make of you a great family, a nation, through which all the families and nations of the earth will be blessed. And Abraham says, that sounds wonderful, let's do it, (laughs) and goes to follow God, but things don't happen as fast as he wants to, and his wife is so so old, and she's never had a child, and you could forgive him for for realizing that uh, clearly this isn't how it's going to happen. I still believe God had a promise for me, but but um, you know my my wife does have a very young servant. Um, probably what God would want is for us to have a child that way, and so Abraham turns away 
from the promise of God. And he impregnates Hagar, and Ishmael is born. But what does God do? He doesn't wipe the slate clean and start over. No, God not only honors the original promise and gives Abraham and Sarah a true-born son through which his promise will be fulfilled, but he also honors the other boy, Ishmael, the child of Abraham's dalliances, the, the product of Abraham taking matters into his own hands. And Abraham, uh, uh, Ishmael fathers 12 princes of his own. Did you know that in the story? The story continues and God's people become more established and they eventually form a kingdom and they have a king on the throne named David who has been given the promise that the Messiah, the anointed king of God, would someday come through his line. Now, uh, David doesn't have any challenges fathering children at this point. But he sees one night from his perch... Uh, Bathsheba there, bathing. And the, the moonlight and her beauty overthrew him, as the song says. And so David turns away from what God would have for him. And not only does he commit adultery with Bathsheba, but when she is found to be pregnant, which uh, is pretty good evidence of what has happened, he arranges for her husband to go out to the front lines of battle and for everyone to fall back at an appointed time and suddenly the problem known as Uriah goes away. Except that you know problems don't go away when you handle them that way. And David has fallen into such shame. What does God do? He has him killed in battle. No. What he does, and this is amazing to me, He says to David, I made you a promise. The Messiah is going to come from your line. And guess who the mother will be? Bathsheba. It's amazing. God honors the promise in that particular way. And you see this happening over and over again throughout the story of God's people in the Old Testament. God promises. The people obey and trust for a while, and then they turn away. There are tragic results, and then God comes to find them over and over and over again. And eventually he says, enough. And God himself comes. The word becomes flesh and moves into the neighborhood. And here we begin to see what that chorus of the song tells us. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. God's people haven't always known this, but now we do. And so here is a man who has not only turned away from God, but has also turned away from his people from his religious community. He is a Jew, but he is in cahoots with the Roman Empire, and he, tech, he collects their taxes for them from his Jewish brothers and sisters, and uh, 
he takes some extra. And he kicks the money up because money rolls uphill, and you know what rolls downhill. He keeps a little bit for himself. He becomes very wealthy, and everyone despises him because they know what he's doing, but they can't stop him because he's an agent of the empire. And so nobody will have anything to do with Zacchaeus until one day God is walking along and sees Zacchaeus up in the tree. Now, Zacchaeus may also, may also have had a little bit of short man syndrome. Um, and God says to him, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. I want to have dinner at your house tonight. Now, to dine with somebody was to affirm their place in the world. It was to say, you are okay with me. Nobody wanted to eat with Zacchaeus, but Jesus did. And Zacchaeus was so moved by the love of God in Christ that he changed his ways. He said, I will pay back whatever I stole four times over, and if there's still money left after that, I'll give that away too. Salvation had come to his house that day. Here's a woman. We met her a couple of weeks ago. She has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, she was guilty. Make no mistake about that. It was a setup, but she was guilty. And her accusers drag her before Jesus and say, Moses' law says that we have to stone women like this. What do you say, teacher? And you know how Jesus does. He gets in between the woman and her accusers, and he says, Okay, but the one of you that doesn't have any sin in your own life, you have to cast the first stone. And they all realize, this isn't happening, and they go away. Jesus drives off the accusers, and he says to the woman, Ma'am, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, No one, sir. And he says, What? Neither do I condemn you. From now on, do things differently. Here's another woman. Jesus meets her at a well in Samaria. She was a Samaritan woman, which means, if you'll pardon the very uh, crude and offensive term that would have been used of her, she was a half-breed. She was not fully one of the chosen people. And uh, there's much that tradition has said about this woman, uh, notably that perhaps she was a harlot, But I would like to point out that the text is actually silent on that point. We don't know why it is true that she has had multiple husbands, but she has. It could be that she was a harlot. It could also be that she had a run of really terrible luck in her life and had been widowed multiple times. Sometimes the world happens to us in that way. At any rate, what we know is that she's had multiple husbands and the man she's living with now is not her husband. And so in addition to the fact that she's a Samaritan woman... She is also um, quintuply damaged goods in the eyes of the culture around her. And yet God comes to her, and he sits down next to her, and he says, I know what your problem is. You're thirsty. If you give me some water, I will give you living water, and you will never thirst again. And do you know what... This woman does, who, by the way, church, church tradition calls her Saint Fotini, the enlightened one. She goes and tells her whole village. She says, 
come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah? And so a, a few weeks ago on Easter, I, I told you that the women who come to the tomb are the first uh, evangelists, the first preachers of the gospel. No, actually, she was probably the first preacher of the gospel, right? So don't ever let anybody tell you that a woman can't preach the gospel because they do in the Bible. I'm sorry, right? What else do we know about St. Fotini? Well, she became a, a, a great evangelist in the church, too. Tradition tells us that her whole family, her, her sons became uh, believers and spread the gospel. And in the Roman Empire, of course, this is not something that you do. It's not safe to do, and you will be um, in trouble if you do. And so her sons are viciously tortured and killed by Nero, the, uh, the emperor. The hands cut off and you know, bodies pulled apart, like very gruesomely killed. And he comes to her, the, the emperor, and says, okay, now what do you say about Jesus? Will you reject him now? And she says, no. As a matter of fact, um, I don't know if this is true, but tradition tells us that she spits in his face. And then he had her put to death too. Do you know how he executed St. Fotini, the Samaritan woman? He threw her down a well. She was so turned on by the love of God in Jesus that she went and told everybody all about him. Here's a man who has a major spiritual problem. He is possessed not just by one demon, but by a whole legion of demons. He is so uh, distressed in body and mind as a result of this possession that they have to chain him down. And he supernaturally breaks the chains. And eventually he ends up living in a cemetery, naked, raving. And no one will go near him. I mean, would you go to the cemetery where the, the, the naked guy who could break chains was shouting? I mean, I want to be like Jesus and everything, but that's hard. What does God do? God sails across the sea. He comes to the man, and he says, I will visit with you. And he casts out the demons from the man, and the man is made well in body and mind and soul. And he says to Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. Where are we going? What's the plan? He's so moved by the love of God in Christ that he will go anywhere. And Jesus says to him, well, just go back to your people and tell them what has happened to you. These stories are littered in the gospel. People turning away, God turning to them. And in humanity's ultimate sin, when we in our fear and in our pride and in our exercise of the systems of power and oppression that are at our disposal, which, by the way, are both religious and political, when we do the unthinkable and put Jesus on the cross, when we put God to death, how does God respond? I sound like a broken record at this point, don't I? Not with violence of his own, but he hangs there on the cross, his arms spread wide, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And so, when we go down in our final futility to our own death, who do we find there but the God who died himself? Who says, 
Even though you go down into Sheol, into the pit, I am there with you. And who says, Behold, I was dead, but now I'm alive forever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. And the time is coming when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son, and those who hear will live. Hallelujah. That is the gospel in chairs. That is the more ancient, more restorative, more therapeutical, more beautiful, more patristic, I would argue more biblical understanding of the nature of salvation. That's a beautiful gospel. You see, you have to understand this. Christ did not come to change the Father. Christ did not come to placate the Father. Christ did not come to satisfy the Father's wrath. Christ came to reveal the Father, to show us the true heart of God. And what is God like? God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God was not like Jesus. God's people haven't always known this, but now we do. You want some proof from Scripture? You think this is a pretty little story, but it doesn't quite compute? Well, look at Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Look at Hebrews 1. He is the exact replica, the imprint of God's being. You see, when we look at the cross, we don't look at it and say, that's what God does. We look at the cross and we say, that's who God is. Where was God on Good Friday? Was he doing something to Jesus? No, God was on the cross. God was in Christ reconciling us to himself. When Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He expresses what so many of us have felt at times. But he's also dropping a hint the size of the Titanic. Because he's quoting Psalm 22. And read to the end of Psalm 22. I don't have time to do it now. Bring it home and read to the end and see if God has forsaken the Messiah. I see all you nerds pulling out your phones. (laughs) that's all right go ahead it's good news you'll find Jesus perfectly revealing the heart of the father confronts sin like this I forgive you and God is never turning away from humanity no matter how many times we turn our backs on God God pursues us And finds us where we are. And he says, no, no, I love you. And we say, okay, but I want to do it my way. And we sin a little bit farther away. 
See if we can get away from God's love. And you can't. God pursues us and pursues us and pursues us, not so that He can catch us and jam the lightning bolt down into our chest, but so that He can confront us and overwhelm us with His never-ending love and grace. And it doesn't matter how hard you sin or how loudly you do it. God's pursuit of those He loves, those He made, goes on and on and on forever. God doesn't look at sinners and say, oh, you are a sinner and I am holy. I need my special divine sunglasses because I can't even look at you. No. Where do you ever see Jesus doing anything like that with a sinner? You might be confused because there are people in the Gospels who do that kind of thing. Who are they? They're the Pharisees. Is it a controversial statement? Are you going to fire me for saying that God is not like a Pharisee, but actually he's more like Jesus? No matter where we are, God is there confronting us with his love. When we run away, he confronts us with his love. Even when we murder him, he confronts us with love and forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Now, I suspect that in the room there are maybe a range of responses to what I've just said. I want to give you space. Uh, in a minute to respond in your heart however you'd like to but let me address two groups of people there's one group of people in the room who has um, for whom this this first telling of the gospel is so deeply ingrained we've heard it so many times for our whole life that the, the idea of letting go of it even long enough to turn to something that is better and more beautiful is terrifying to us because we know there will be that moment as we turn where we're not holding on to anything Now that's called deconstruction, and it is terrifying. And you will have the voices of so many people echoing in your head. You know what they will say. You know what they will think. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the God who looks like Jesus. Now, there may be another group of people in the room who wandered in here or who just don't really have, you're spiritually unaffiliated, right? Like uh, George Clooney and O Brother Art Thou. <laughs> right? You've never heard these Gospels, one version or the other, and it's all very confusing. But if you had to pick, I'm pretty sure you know which one you'd want. Let me say to you that God does not particularly care whether you ever heard this before today or not. God is not concerned with the, the state of your uh, spiritual knowledge up to this date. God is not um, going to hold back his loving grace from you because you didn't know this story until today. And so what I want to ask you to do, I've given you uh, what I believe to be what Jesus has to say to you, what God has to say to you through his Son. What I want you to do now is take a minute of silence and formulate your response to him. How do you respond to God, to Jesus, having heard this story? I'm going to give you a minute of silence to think about that.
Do you know now how you respond to Jesus? What is your response to what you have heard him say to you? I'm going to ask you to do something which I don't usually ask you to do, and so perhaps you'd be willing to uh, close your eyes and sort of maybe bow your heads in a sort of a posture of prayer. Um, It's very rare that I ask people to respond in this way, but today it feels like it's the one that we need to do. And so I would like you, if you are a person who has felt your heart stirred by this, if you have heard something new from God in this uh, moment, to activate some of that in your body by standing up. And uh, you can stand up right now where you are. You know, people aren't looking around and that kind of thing. Uh, If God has stirred your heart, please stand. It seems like putting our bodies into it kind of makes something uh, more real. And I want to invite anybody who would be in, in, in that group of people having had that kind of experience, I want to make the first invitation to communion be to you. Now, in a minute, we're all going to stand up, and so nobody will know. The, nobody will be the wiser. But to anybody who's standing, know that this table is the table of the Lord Jesus, that his call to you is one of love, that, that the broken body and shed blood that are, sh- that are represented here in the bread and the wine do not represent God's wrath, but rather God's love. Let me ask you all to stand if you are able. And I want to invite all of you to come now. I do apologize for having gone longer than usual. But this is so good, I didn't want to to skip any of it. God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself and you can participate in that and be part of it and receive it. Just simply come to him. Our table is open. There'll be a member of the prayer team here. If you'd like to receive personal prayer about whatever's in your heart right now, please come and receive it. Let's continue to lift our hearts and our voices to God in song. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.